Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I am Blue. And we're here to talk about game design. This month, we're talking about fall damage and more specifically, how to avoid receiving fall damage. This initially started as kind of a joke suggestion that as things sometimes go with us became a more serious thing rather like title screens ended up becoming but before we get into the specific games let's talk about fall damage more broadly and like why it exists so there's a like small school i actually i'm curious we did not talk about this before we started recording but i am actually curious what your opinion is on this some people have advocated for a platformer's should have no fall damage, like just in general, like unless you have a good reason for it. Where, where do you sit on that? I think that all platformers have fall damage in Bottomless Pit. Sonic has fall damage. It's just that it's very binary. I think that it, it does depend on the game, very much yeah. so. But yeah. fall damage is a way to make players think about their environment and verticality in not just a purely friendly way. And games are about friction in many ways. So the different ways we can create friction are important and how we let players engage with friction and avoid friction Mm. create a lot of like texture between different play experiences and you know on one hand it's really nice when a game gives you no fall damage like gravity rush because it lets you feel free and unrestrained and that flight and freedom is part of that game's appeal but something like skyrim has a lot of fall damage that might not kill you, but will make you think twice about a long fall. And it sort of forces you to respect the very limited amount of reality that game tries to push. And there's a huge emphasis on mountains in that game, which fall damage helps emphasize the sort of danger of mountainous terrain. Even if for the most part, it's not actually a real concern for the player. So I caused you to go on a tangent, but yeah, very briefly, fall damage is when you fall from too great of a height in a game that has height. Do you take damage, right? That's that's about as simple as it is. Touching back on the Sonic example, actually, that's a really good thing that I want to talk about. Some games, some uh, game worlds are set up to have pits. Mechanically speaking, these pits don't tend to be fall damage. These pits tend to be, uh, again, mechanically speaking, programmatically kill planes. That is to say, you didn't take damage from falling. You um, You hit a special trigger. You hit a special condition that the game just decides... Yes, that is too far now out of bounds or something similar. And now um, kill condition has been met, whatever that kill condition is, whether it's just respawning you and then taking a life away or dealing damage to you sometimes. Like like sometimes it is a, a plane that doesn't necessarily kill you, but then like, you know, slowly just damages you until you die. Yeah, in the pure kill plane situation, like even if you're invulnerable, like in Sonic, you will get done in i don't know of many that just have like slow death i guess like things like quicksand in certain games um kind of emulate that there are no there are actually quite a number of games you know and it's one of those things where i can't give you an example off the top of my head where uh the it is a damage plane uh satisfactory actually uh is a game that i've just been playing it's you know a factory building game but it has a lot of verticality involved and it does have pits but games like this don't want to have a kill plane. They prefer to have a damage plane because if you got too close to it somehow but are able to back out, then it doesn't want to just kill you, right? It doesn't want to just... So it wants to, like, give you a warning. And, like, you, you work around, like, various edge cases by having damage planes versus kill planes. Mm-hmm. Um, plane here is also a very, like, specific terminology um, that is tied to the game design. They tend to be plane. 
like pretty flat planes. And uh, not that we'll talk about any of this, but just for people's knowledge and like bonus stuff, sometimes you can get under them. Um, Sonic, actually a very good example, has a lot of kill planes that a lot of speedruns will just avoid, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's how they go out of bounds and don't die. So yeah. What's your opinion on the should there be fall damage versus pure freedom type thing, since you asked me that? Oh, I am of the opinion that uh, unless you have a good reason for your game to have fall damage that it shouldn't so like skyrim is the game you brought up that's a good reason to have fall damage because you want to have this more grounded world but if you are making a platformer normally i I don't see why you have fall damage right Uh, yeah i'm definitely like in the raw platformer sense the sonic mario bottomless pits are more what i expect and want yeah because even Mario uh, has flirted with the idea of fall damage. There are some games where you fall high enough and you take damage when Mario has damage, uh, a health bar to take. Normally the 3D Marios, right? More recently, though, what happens is you get stunned. Mm-hmm. If you fall from too high, Mario just like enters a recovery animation. And then like I, I believe that's how it is in Odyssey. There isn't a height too high for Mario to like recover from. But he does this like, you know, gymnast land that he has to like pull his legs out of because the gravity is pulling him down. So, so far, I think we've brought up like half a dozen examples, none of which are examples that are actually the canonical examples on our list. That's right. That's right. And that's entirely the point of this like, you know, short back and forth is that there's a lot to talk about around this space. And we've chosen a few games that have just interesting ways to avoid it. And with that, let's look at our first one. Just Cause 2 is a 2010 open-world third-person shooter with an emphasis on chaos and movement developed by Avalanche Studios, directed by Magnus Nedfors, produced by Daniel Wilfor, and designed by Peter Johansson. So Just Cause features a generic open-world sort of character navigating a large island and causing a number of chaotic things to happen on it, mostly at the whims of the play. It's a very sort of early toy box, open world game for the PS3 sort of era of consoles. And it's sort of often considered a bit silly. And one of the reasons it's considered silly is that while there is fall damage in this game, you often won't have to worry about it because if you use your trusty grappling hook and grapple straight for the ground, so by going faster towards the ground than you usually would, you will avoid all damage that you would have taken from falling. And you also have a parachute. You also have a parachute that you that neatly packs itself back into your backpack every time you put it away. It's really smart to do something like this, right? Because you immediately tell your player, this is a video game. They're, they're throw throw common sense out the window. There's a you know concept of suspension of disbelief that is a contract that a lot of people sign unconsciously when they enter a piece of media. And the media does itself every kind of favor it can when it sets itself up like this. By establishing this kind of physics rule early on, you make the player just much more willing to accept almost anything at this point. Physics is a suggestion, you know. And for, I really think it's a big success for tone. Like, yeah, fall damage here, it it can be a punishment. So there are points when... You maybe get hit by an explosion, you will ragdoll, and during that you might suffer fall damage. So it can make certain dangerous situations more dangerous, but as a navigational thing, it really just enhances the chaotic vibe that this game really leans into from, it's like, 
raw narrative presentation to the emphasis on just causing damage and even like its method of navigation being combining a grappling hook and a parachute to quickly traverse an island. Very unconventional method of transport. You would not think a parachute is a fast means of transportation. But, you know, again, the game is cheating a lot of the time, right? You get a lot of horizontal movement while in the parachute. More than you should, right? To be honest. But it takes a little bit of finesse to get the hang of doing it without being tremendously slow. But yeah, that's the entire point of it is that the developers at Avalanche realized one of the great parts about an open world sandbox is that there's a lot of place, a lot of space to move in. And one of the design problems presented by this space is how to traverse it in a fun way because running from point a to point b is normally not fun right yeah so how do we make that moment to moment gameplay more engaging well let the player fly uh but then flying is not you know flying what's the difference between flying and running so yeah parachute grappling hook really great combination and I think one of the other things that really works here is that it's not that the game, the game could have easily just not had fall damage and that would have been, that would have done some of these goals too. But the fact that it's a step that the player has to take to avoid it does mean that the verticality in the game carries some risk. You have to be ready to either pull out your parachute or aim down to grappling hook. You have to take some responsibility for getting into that bad situation of falling to start with. It's not a lot of effort, but it is something. And asking the player to be active in this choice, in this moment, does make it really fun. And it also means that players are likely to actually do the silly thing of grappling into the ground, which honestly is very satisfying to do. <laughs> Way more satisfying than just falling and not taking damage. Uh, it makes players be unafraid of heights and allows that kind of design space to open up so we you know we mentioned in the opening how skyrim has a lot of mountains and sometimes traversing the mountains is tricky the the silliest drops will just kill you well in just cause 2 sometimes you have helicopters and sometimes you want to grapple up to helicopters and players would be more hesitant to do it if they didn't have a more secure way of getting down yes they have the parachute but they also know that they can just grapple into the ground at any time they want um, it's giving players multiple buffers to make mistakes in. Very good. Being able to grapple into the ground is also a distinctive choice in and of itself, because in many games with grappling hooks, the regular ground is not one of the options you have. You know, in a game with a sometimes slow if your momentum's off parachute, it does help you just gain control of the situation. So it's already using something that would have had to have been there, regardless of this fall damage choice. One more thing I would like to add as well is um, power fantasy. No other NPC in the game does what the main character, Rico Rodriguez, the terrorist slash freedom fighter, because <laughs> um, it's really which side you're on, right? Yep. Um, but yeah, no, no other NPC other than Rico does it. So it, it's not like this is just a technology and everyone in this world can do it. It's not that, actually. It is Rico is special. Yep. Um, Rico is cool. special. He is a protagonist. And this is the protagonist's power. Yeah. Like, it's it's rare for a game to go, protagonist power means that you can grapple into the ground and that's that's all right. Yeah. And like some could argue this is like there's little narrow distance because people are afraid of falling from heights. And even the protagonist is like a little concerned because the very opening of the game is you falling from a helicopter and grabbing a parachute from someone else that then gets torn. But like shouldn't be a concern if the grappling hook is doing what it does. But doesn't matter. It's a really good opening cutscene. It's fine. <laughs> 
I mean, Rico Rico always struck me as um an eighties action star, right? Yes, he, he is the the invincible. <laughs> like if he'd wear a comic Marvel comic run, he'd be the invincible Rico Rodriguez because mm. like he shrugs off oil tanker explosions. He you parachutes two feet from the ground, nothing hurts him, and that is a power fantasy. Like that's a choice. Sure. I was just to say, like, yeah, the the choice about fall damage here and how it's very easy to avoid really leans into that power fantasy a lot and really is a great success of this game. Oh, one final thing to say, because I feel like we're about done talking around this game. Fall damage exists for everything else. Like, that's the one big reason for fall damage to exist. It's a physics sandbox, not just a sandbox, right? Hmm, it's a good point. So, like, other things exploding, launching in the air and falling, that does damage to them. So it's important for fall damage to exist because that's part of the toys, you know, it's part of Rico's tool belt. Um, it just doesn't apply to him because he's special. He's you. He's your, your player character. And with that, let's move on to an example that is just a little more restrained. The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is a 2017 open-world action-adventure game developed by Nintendo EPD, directed by Hidemaro Fujibayashi, produced by Eiji Aonuma. It's got fall damage, obviously, it's in this episode, but the thing that's interesting about this is that fall damage really ties into one of the core economies of the game, which is stamina. Stamina is a big gating mechanism in Breath of the Wild. It's one of the two resources that you want to upgrade over the course of the game by going to various shrines. It's one of the things that is very desirable to find in potions, stamina recovery and stamina extension. And it's used for a lot of things. It's used for running. It's used for climbing. It's used for, in fall damage terms, your parachute. And your parachute's very easy to use. I believe the game calls it a glider. Glider, that's right. It does call it a glider. And the glider is very cheap to use your stamina for. So in general, you can avoid any issues of fall damage by just paying a little bit of attention to your stamina. But I think that really works for it. Like this is asking you to pay attention to your movement. And that's what a lot of Breath of the Wild really is about, paying attention to your movement and really engaging with where you are going and what how you're doing it. That's why climbing in that game is so compelling because of the stamina system, yeah. in part at least, and like trying to find places you can rest to rebuild it. It's why like when you get to a tall surface, there's a little bit of like, okay, how far can I fly with my current stamina? There's even a few parts in the game that are using like your gliding stamina limitation to get you off until you have a certain amount or invest a certain amount of potions and things into extending it to get to certain far off islands and things. Yep. It's one of those there's a lot. Basically that they were very smart with the development of this stamina thing. <laughs> stamina thing, such a great um generalized term. The stamina system and just how they they put challenges in front of the player. Sometimes you have to make a decision of, oh, do you just, you know, give up on climbing this cliff wall so that you can land safely because sometimes you get far enough up and you know you'll just slide all the way down maybe you just give up and just not die um i believe that even if you have zero stamina you get one flutter of the glider which just arrests just enough momentum that you you should be able to save yourself 
Oh, that um, does but that's sound it. right. Actually, I'd forgotten about this. Yeah, but I, I believe that's it. Like, you don't get another. Fl- you don't get to just pull it out just for like a split second again. Um, the glider is really cool because it like it instantly stops you from being at terminal velocity. It instantly stops you from being at a at a speed where you will take damage if you impact the ground. But you know, that's all just safety mechanism for the player. Really, is what it it like really boils down to. Uh, it's also really cool because if you play the if you've played Breath of the Wild, you may remember or may not. It's been a while. The opening section of the game is on the Great Plateau. I think it's called the Great Plateau? Yeah, the Great Plateau. And it's basically this raised portion of the map uh, of Hyrule. And if you jump off the sides, it almost feels like it's a kill plane. It almost feels like you are force killed on the side of it. But, you know, the world opens up once you get the glider because then you can just glide off of it. Which makes it feel really empowering because it is literally like your access to the rest of the world. Yeah. And this is sort of very interesting, I think, having talked about it right after Just Cause 2. Because in Just Cause 2, it uses... Honestly, these two approaches are very similar. In general, if you pay attention, you will not take fall damage in either of these games. Outside of a few, like, you get knocked out and are stunned as you fall. But Breath of the Wilds ties into a limited resource that you'll generally be able to control enough to have the opportunity not take damage. But it ties in this to the greater sort of movement simulation side that Breath of the Wild really emphasizing that it's a dynamic world with many interconnected systems. And so one of its systems interconnects with falling, your yeah. stamina. Um, and it is such a, oh, what's the term I'm looking for? Mechanical? Like it, it's, it's very systems-based mechanically tied together, like uh, inex- inexorably tied together. And the honorable mention to all of this is like, just, just if you ever watch a speed run of Breath of the Wild, the stuff they do is nuts. And it is really enabled by the fact that it's a physics system. Like perhaps more than just cause, you know, you really break the physics engine of the game in order to allow you to do tricks. And Mm. then all of these tricks are only allowed to really work because you can arrest your fall damage for free so long as you can glider. So long as you can pull out the glider for half a second. Because traveling fast is one thing. How do you not die to the fall? You have to have the glider, right? Yeah. Traveling fast is good. Landing fast is fall damage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I actually, that's that's a thing I believe it is if you impact any surface at velocity, you will take damage. So I think you can take damage from launching yourself into a wall. So it's it's that kind of like smart system, right? Yeah, and I imagine that's just like fairly unusual to do that. But given all the various suspend time shenanigans, it must crop up every now and then. I mean, one of the easy things that I, I don't e- I don't even think you need to be a speedrunner to have really tried this if you played like when the game released was like stasis a rock and then try to get on it as you launch it. Sometimes you hit the side of a wall before you hit the ground. And I think you take damage there. I think if I'm remembering those sequences correctly, I think it's more that you are taking damage from the rock falling on you. Oh, from the rock hitting you? Yeah, maybe that's right, actually. Yeah. Sometimes I mean, possible. What is is it fall damage if something falls on you from yeah. the side? <laughs> that's yeah, that's yeah. the philosophical question of our times. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, it feels like we didn't say that much because it's a really like condensed, good system and consistent. It's system. An elegant system that, in the same way that Just Cause emphasizes chaotic nature, in this it emphasizes your resources. And your ability to control them. Yep, that's 
that's really all we have to say, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so with that, we're going to move on to game numero tres. Risk of Rain 2 is a 2020 released third-person shooter roguelike with a focus on collecting items throughout a run that improve your characters. It's developed by Hapu Games, designed by Duncan Drummond, Paul Morse, and Jeffrey Hunt. This is a, oh, how do we describe it? An over-the-shoulder camera, over-the-shoulder, above-the-head camera kind of third-person perspective game where you have this 3D environment. They're all handcrafted. Um, The roguelike and random aspects come from enemy spawns and item locations, but the worlds themselves are all handcrafted. And sometimes these worlds have bottomless pits. Below the world, it isn't a kill plane necessarily. It is a respawn plane. And because what this does is it doesn't want to, the game doesn't want to kill you if you jump off the side of the map. It does want to punish you though. So what happens when you hit the the respawn plane is that you you get put back relatively close to where you jumped off. Now, the thing that has happened in this game is that fall damage does exist. And in theory, you would have to have been going pretty fast to, uh, you know, by the time you hit the respawn plane, because you just you would have been falling for a while. So although you get put back on the map, you slam into the ground with whatever terminal velocity that you had achieved off the map is. I believe the game does have like a calculation to see if the damage that is going to apply to you exceeds your maximum health and it doesn't want to kill you. If there is any enemy around you, they'd like ping you, just sneeze in your direction and you would die. And just to check a little um so you can get you can be hit by regular fall damage outside anytime. of falling off the anytime yeah. that's right there's normal fall damage at any time um you can go pretty high a lot of characters have um mo- movement abilities and half the time they can send themselves to a height normally that would cause fall damage so it's not even like oh i'm traversing the terrain in a silly way it, it might just be that you were a bit careless with some of your abilities aimed it a bit high and then you fall and then you take fall damage um now what is interesting that risk of rain 2 does first of all the fact that it's not a kill plane if you fall off the side it is a respawn plane that applies fall damage um so it's like this nice tie-in system of like okay we want to punish you for falling off the side of the world but we don't want to kill you hey we have this system of fall damage already let's use that again but because they use that again you can use every mechanic that interacts with fall damage in interesting ways for it so simplest example in a generalized case that applies to every character in the game you are able to obtain the hopu feather which allows you to get an extra jump in the air um specifically worded this way because what it does is it allows you to get one extra jump per hopu feather of which you can obtain many so you can get multiple jumps and this allows you first of all if you have enough of them to just jump your way to a height where fall damage will be a thing or to arrest your falling momentum, falling speed as you're approaching the ground via, um, you know, air jump, extra jump, double jump, triple jump, whatever, space jump, right? This also applies to if you fall off the level. If you can time yourself well, you can like uh, mitigate or even remove respawn slash fall damage by jumping at the right spot. And then you'll just land back on the ground. This is hard off the stage because you can't see the plane. But And I assume the characters that have like things that would halt their momentum in some way can also similarly do that. But I don't think those abilities are especially common. It's been a while since I've tinkered with... Common's an interesting question there. I'm not super sure. But yeah, that's right. If you have... There are a lot of like 
abilities have if you're in the air you get a small hop instead which like just arrests your fall these things would mitigate fall damage in the same way the hop feather would for sure there are a couple of characters that are almost designed around fall damage the simpler one to talk about first would be acrid um it's this lovely little lizard boy that spits acid everywhere and one of acrid's abilities is to jump in a only pseudo controlled arc and then upon landing impact you know slams the ground and like causes acid to burst out but one interesting property of this move is that acrid is uh, immune to fall damage so if you uh, use this activating it. off the stage you would be fine you'd be fine if you use this from the top of the level from the top rope as some people would say all the way down to ground floor or even off the level you would be fine you know at a height that would normally kill other characters mm-hmm. uh, and it's a great one of the aspects of risk of rain is exploring the level to find the exit portal because you have to find it and then defend the exit portal you have to like uh, trigger an event and defend it so s- these characters are super fun the the next one I'll talk about will be the loader these characters are super fun because they give you a way to engage with the verticality of the stage that isn't relying on items that feel impactful because Accurate not only lands, he lands in a big splash of damage. Um, there and it, are... Hmm? And, sorry, and it's really, it's, you know, I talked about early on that, like, fall damage is a way in which games can give texture between different games. But in this sense, this is also, a, like, gives a sense of texture between different characters and risk of rain one of its kind of distinctive features is that compared to like maybe some other roguelikes like dead cells and things your character starts as a different character like you pick which character you're playing and each character is very distinctly different that's right and so all the tools in which they have to make their these characters feel different from level zero or level one or however we define starting points is significant and so fall damage is one of the tools in which we can differentiate characters this character has a way to mitigate it yeah absolutely so the loader was added sometime after i initially played in the early access and at that point there was already another character called the mercenary and i'm loading a lot of names here special nouns so let me go this over this again There was a character that is melee and sword based called the mercenary who by default had a double jump built in and then on top of that had abilities that can send him into the air. So you could easily take fall damage by just like pushing a combo attack up into the air with the mercenary. But then they added in the loader who is another melee based enemy uh, player playable character. Sorry. Um, Effectively, her archetype is rocket punch the character and to like support this archetype she has a grappling hook and she can punch straight up into the air but they just decided you know what for the loader she's gonna have a passive that just makes her immune to all fall damage ever uh and this is an interesting decision because she ends up being much easier to maneuver around fall damage at least right like in terms of like heights and stuff uh, in terms of like going very far and very fast, um, you're not punished as much for screwing up, you know, where you expect to be. However, it's harder to predict where she'll end up because she has a lot of momentum associated with her. So it's almost kind of necessary for her to be immune to fall damage. I do remember playing her a little bit and like the momentum of her is really difficult. If she had to suffer like regular fall damage on top of that unwieldy movement, I think that it'd be very easy for players to give up quickly and go to old favorites. And, you know, we spent a whole like six months 
way back when talking about various dominant strategy mitigation. Yep. One of the parts of that is like, if you make other options unappealing, players yeah. won't try them out. And that this would be a great candidate for potential, oh, I played them and they keep killing themselves. That's no fun. Yeah, it sucks. That's right. Because e- even what happens now is I play the loader and I'm off the level on the levels that allow you to, to like send yourself off into the, into the abyss. But at least you just kind of go, oh, whoops. And then you respawn and you didn't take any damage, right? Mm. And then you just carry on and you try better the next time. But if you had taken damage, you'd be like, man, this character sucks. Now that's at the low level. The interesting consequence follow on from this is that at a higher level of play, you can kind of abuse this. Uh, Enemies in Risk of Rain are smart-ish. Most of them are programmed to never walk off a ledge. So if you need a moment to breathe, sometimes an item will kick in and regenerate you if you're out of combat for a moment. She has a grappling hook that stays grappled something for so long as you hold the button down. You could like dash off a level and grapple back to the underside of it and just hang there until you've healed or your abilities have come off cooldown. Time is a factor that you're always facing against in Risk of Rain, so this doesn't break the game. You can't just hide out forever, but it's an interesting panic button option that the loader has access to that no one else does, which is cool. Like, it's very cool. And it's emergent gameplay, I guess, is like a a term that a lot of uh, sandboxes like to use. It's like, you know, we put this system in this system in this system in, and then we didn't anticipate that you would be able to use this in this way. I don't know that the designers didn't anticipate this, but I always found that to be a very interesting aspect of the loader is how dynamic you can make her gameplay because she has so much mobility. Where do you want to be? How are you going to get there? Is basically the question you're asking yourself with the loader half the time. The other half is how do I kill something in one rocket punch? Because yeah, (laughs) she's fun. She's a very fun character. So Risk of Rain did some very interesting things by having like very traditional fall damage and then just, you know, this small, interesting, isolated, for the most part, ways to play around it. And when they decided to completely break it in the form of the loader, you get some very interesting consequences as a result of that. With that, let's look at our next games. So this section is going to be a little different to a lot of our usual sections. So these two games are very interconnected in what we want to say about them. So we want to put them in the same section together. So first up, we're talking about Dark Souls 3, a 2016, what some would call Soulsborne game, that is to say, an action role-playing game of that very specific flavor that From Software is known for these days. Directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki, Isamu Okano, Yui Tanimura, and designed by Shigeto Hirai, Yuya Kimijima, and Hiroshi Yoshida. Dark Souls is known as a, colloquially, a hard game. Um, Some people call it a very fair game. And it, it borrows a lot of its roots from the very like traditional pen and paper RPG uh, in which falling hurts, right? Like very put, very simply put, falling hurts. Uh, falling has always been a very, very regular antagonist and villain in, um, in Dark Souls games. But there are also some very specialized ways to, to counteract some of it. So very quickly... And then we'll go into our next game, and then we'll explain why we're talking about two games at once. You have, in Dark Souls 3 specifically, which is why this is the specific entry in the series that we're talking about, a ring called the Silver Cat Ring, which 
mitigates fall damage, I believe, so long as you haven't taken a lethal fall. So long as the game hasn't decided that you've fallen far enough that you should just die, uh, it'll mitigate the amount of fall damage you've taken. I think it's like 75% of fall damage is mitigated or something. Uh, I remember vaguely seeing it. Sounds, yeah, that sounds right. So it doesn't like, get rid of it completely, but it certainly makes falling from a much higher height tenable if you're trying to avoid fall damage. And Dark Souls levels are fairly vertical, right? Dark Souls levels can be vertical. Oftentimes, secrets are held behind vertical fall sections, or even climb then fall sections, I should say. So being able to fall at some places is like super useful. Sometimes you just want to Go faster. Dark Souls, one of the best things about Dark Souls is its level design. Sometimes if an area is above something you want to get to, you can just fall to it. It's a ring, right? This item? It's a ring. That's right. What else? How valuable is that item slot? Is it a very free item slot? It's like, ah, I don't know what Um, to do with this ring slot. I'll put this thing in it. Even yes and no. Depends on the point in the game you are, and you can get the Silver Cat ring mid-game-ish for Dark Souls 3 if this is your like first playthrough on this character. Um, you only ever have four ring slots, and each ring can give you this small advantage in you know very one very specific hyper specific way that is valuable, very 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 valuable. It it you almost depend on rings to decide what your specialization can be, and that is to say, all the rings are fixed at specific intervals through the game. So you need you the ring slots are kind of like dedicated to those um, uses. Uh, and when you decide to make the conscious decision of I will take you know ring one out to put in the silver cat ring just for this fall damage sequence, that's a very conscious decision because rings are enough of a damage boost if you are in sorceries or miracles. If you're in a magic build, that you know you may not now be able to kill something in two hits or three hits or whatever and require an extra cast. That's a big deal. Rings can be something like you gain back health off of a backstab or a critical hit. That can be a big deal to your survivability. Rings can be your dodges are better. You have more poise, therefore you don't get flinched as much. You have more carry weight, so you can put on better armor. Rings can define a build. So choosing to have a slot dedicated to just when you might fall, not normally something you would do. And with slots, let's look at the pair game. Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition, which is a 2014 tabletop role-playing game developed initially by Jeremy Crawford, James Watt, Robert J. Schwab, and Bruce R. Cordell at Wizards of the Coast. Of course, being one of the world's most popular tabletop games, it's been touched by many, many people and was, in its first edition, originally developed by Gary Gainax. Gygax, even. Gainax is a very different thing. Um, So... In Dungeons & Dragons, being like a very big game with many, many options, there are lots of ways to reduce fall damage, such as individual class traits. But the particular example I find most interesting is probably the most common method of avoiding fall damage, which is an ability called Featherfall. It's a spell, yeah, which allows you to target up to five creatures that are falling within range. Range is about 60 feet, and that reduces the creature's falling speed to an amount that basically means that it will be safe when it lands. So, why is this interesting? Well, Dungeons & Dragons, unlike a lot of other digital 
role-playing games like Final Fantasy and so on, spells are a very precious resource. So characters can only prepare so many spells per day. That means that if you haven't prepared that spell, you can't cast it. Or there are classes that only learn a very, very small number of spells. So by deciding to make this one of the spells that you learned, you're really committing hard to this. And fall damage is something that in Dungeons and Dragons changes a lot in how devastating it can be depending on where you are in the game. And of course, how much it can devastate you depends on the campaign itself specifically. I think there are like popular campaigns out there watched by people, you know, like uh, public campaigns, you know, televised broadcasts and stuff like that, where characters have died from fall damage, Mm. like straight up died, full death. And in a recent campaign that I was playing in like the second session one of our characters died due to fall damage, and then I immediately learnt Featherfall with my first level up. Yep. So, you know, and in D- D&D, the classes make a big difference on the valuation of these things. So sorcerers only learn a spell per level. Wizards learn two spells per level, but can also learn from books. Warlocks have very, very limited amounts of spells compared to any other class, and so on and so forth. So making the choice to be ready for this making the choice for on that day in the game if you're a wizard like this is the day i think featherfall is going to be useful is denying yourself the opportunity to do other things but much in the same way that fall damage is less devastating as the game can progress quite often it still can be very devastating potentially but it's less likely to outright kill when you're level 20 as opposed to level one spell slots being able to dedicate a spell in your arsenal to fall damage is much more viable as you gain more and more places to store spells so why we want to talk about these games as a pair is both these games have a limited amount of slots in which you can dedicate your abilities to in dark souls we're talking about the rings Here we're talking about spell slots, prepared spells. Dark Souls also has, because it borrows so heavily from pen and paper RPG, um, prepared slash attuned spells. uh, Mm, That's true too. Of which one of them can be, in Dark Souls 3, a spell called Spook, which has the element of the Silver Cat Ring ability, which is to negate fall damage up to a certain point. Um, So yeah. It's one of those things where you have to choose to do it. It's a bit more of a commitment. You have to commit enough points to be able to cast the spell in terms of stats. So yeah, in both these, like, yes, your build itself is kind of what determines if you even have the capacity to do it. Do you have room left in your like your ring slots to fit in Silver Cat Ring? Maybe yes or no. Do you have room in your prepared spells in D&D for it? Or do you even want to spend the time learning it? The huge consequence and in Dark Souls 2. And so it's a lot of resources go into deciding whether you want to be able to skip fall damage or mitigate it or not, which I think is really interesting. Um, there's a lot of when would you use it? And there is a big difference here between the two games. Dark Souls, it has to be preemptive because what you can do is decide, I will equip the Silver Cat Ring just for this fall, put it on, fall, take it off. You can do that. That that requires you to like be very conscious of your environment. You can't be mid-fall and then uh, you know swap to the ring. Maybe you can if your like APM is really high. Whereas in Dungeons and Dragons, Featherfall can be used as a so long as it's been attuned, so long as it's been chosen. You know, it can. It doesn't have to be preemptively applied. It can be done as a reaction. Yes and no. So you can't preemptively like say. Uh, at some point in the next minute, we're going to jump off this cliff. I'll cast it now. But you do have to have decided, if you're a wizard at least, to have prepared it that morning. Yeah, yeah. That's what or I Or mean. you have like, to have chosen it at level up 
as one of the other magic classes. Yeah, yeah. So um, the the way it ends up feeling in game uh, are two very different feels, is what I'm trying to get. Mm, yeah, and it's because of that difference in how you commit to them, which. You know, compared to a lot of the other examples that we've talked about, like in Breath of the Wild and Just Cause, you don't you really commit it. to, you yeah. just have it. Like it's a part of the character kit. There's no way to not have access to mitigate those tools. In Risk of Rain, some characters have it and you might stumble into methods through random chance. But as a rule, like fall damage is a concern. Mm. In these, if you're willing to sacrifice something else, you can avoid these severe consequences. I like to think of it like you you give up a small amount of versatility to circumvent a law of nature, which is when you put it that way, it's like that's very powerful. Yeah. And one thing I find that's really cool about these is that like the the amount of like resource you're dedicating to these is different at different points of the experience. Like Featherfall, if you take that at level one in Dungeons and Dragons, you've committed like one fourth of your knowledge or what have you to knowing that spell. Yeah. And that's a lot to commit. Whereas by the end of the game, it's trivial. It's not really a concern. It's probably part of your repertoire by the end of the game. Because probably, yeah. And even by the end of the game, like there are ways to just buy scrolls of it very easily and so on. Like it's very accessible late in the game. And in Dark Souls, like there are points when I imagine earlier on having rings is more of the concern rather than having equipment slots for rings. Yeah, yep. There are definitely points in the game where you might as well equip it because it's the best ring you have that might have a use. But I seem like late game. It's like, oh, I'm only going to equip it when I need it specifically. It's not going to be just always there. It becomes much rarer that you will have the space to have it on all the time. However, level design gets more complicated, especially when you go into DLC content Mm -hmm. for Dark Souls. And uh, specifically in Dark Souls 3, there's, you know, definitely a point in one of the DLCs where I just kind of went, yeah, I think I just need it for a few of these jumps here. I'll put it on, jump, take it off. Um, but I didn't even find any of those sequences in the main game kind of deal. So designers got more room to flex with, uh, with design space, like literal designed space. And it's really cool. There's a lot of stuff you can do with fall damage. You can make areas scarier to players, right? Like if you have a, a big bad encounter in D&D and you as a DM set it up to be this, you know, narrow ledge that you're fighting on, chances are your party's going to try to get Featherfall in their repertoire. But if you're in the sewer, maybe they won't. Mm. And it gives like a lot of chances to be very expressive in DNA, which is a very important aspect. Like, are you a person that often flees? Like, would you be a burglar and like gently descend from the top of the tower having stolen the jewels? Or would you like sneak back through, never noticed? Like, yeah, many ways to express things. And with that, let's express our overall thoughts in the wrap up. So, fall damage. We talked about the various ways in which fall damage and avoiding it functions as a kind of texture for lots of different games. So we started with Just Cause 2, in which fall damage is a thing that exists, but the player is exempt from if they take it on board and act. 
instead of just letting things happen to them. And it helped create this sort of power fantasy kind of flavor. Whereas Breath of the Wild, you still can avoid fall damage if you're deliberate, but it ties into all the various systems of the game, really enhancing that sort of feeling of it being a very systems and physics driven game that players have control over, but are not necessarily like free to act frivolously within. Risk of Rain 2 is a game where fall damage is a consequence. It's just one of those things you have to, you know, play around. But then very specific examples and specific designs of characters lead to narrow interactions that can create very interesting and singular ways to avoid fall damage that like make it very interesting. And then we talked about the games Dark Souls 3 and D&D 5th edition in kind of the same breath because both of these games have fall damage as a very real consequence. They are both very deadly um, forces in the world, but you can choose through the sacrifice of some relatively precious resources to mitigate them. Uh, In the case of Dark Souls, it's cheaper earlier on through the use of a ring slot, if you can get the Silver Cat ring early enough. And in D&D, it gets cheaper later on as your options, like you just tend to have more options, the higher level your characters are. And, you know, it creates a different kind of tension at different points in the game where fall damage and your relationship to it will change of how afraid of you are you of any particular cliff. That isn't just bottomless, because neither of um, the ways to mitigate them would save you from a bottomless pit. But this episode is not a bottomless pit. We're nearly at the end, so thank you everyone for listening. If you want to talk with us about anything we discussed, correct us, suggest some games that maybe we missed for this topic, you should tweet at the show, at Platinum Pit, or contact us through one of our various other things in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show why don't you recommend it to a friend, or if you're feeling especially fancy, possibly even review it. Next month, we're going to be looking at ports and remasters and sort of what makes a good or interesting bringing back return of something. But we haven't quite sorted out what that list is exactly, so that'll be very exciting next month, both for you and us. Find out together with us. Mm. And with that, thank you for listening.